Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. And this week, I want to let you behind the curtain a little bit about how we thought about putting this one together. So earlier this week, there was a piece in The Atlantic called The House of Representatives is Failing American Democracy by former Congressman Daniel Lipinski. He served in Congress from 2005 to 2021, representing Illinois' third congressional district. And we thought that would be such an interesting conversation to have with him, along with a friend of his from the other side of the aisle in Congress, former Congressman Reed Ribble, who represented Wisconsin's eighth congressional district from 2011 to 2017. It's not a coincidence that Steve perhaps thought of these two guys, given the Bears-Packers game upcoming. But nevertheless, uh, it's going to be a fantastic conversation about what's wrong in Congress. being here. I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, You know, we want to talk largely about how Congress is broken, how the House is broken, and I feel confident that we are going to solve it. We are going to solve Congress (laughs) with the two of you. I'm sure of it. Um, But I want to start with how you got here, uh, how you ran for Congress, why you left, uh, a little bit about yourself, anything like that. So, uh, Congressman Lipinski, let's start with you. Uh, how many hours do we have here? Several. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a um, I was a political science professor, which I, I hate to admit that because I wouldn't put most political science professors in uh, into Congress. Um, but uh, I was teaching, got my PhD in policy at Duke after getting two engineering degrees. I won't go into that. People always question that one. Uh, but I was I was teaching, taught Notre Dame, taught at University of Tennessee. Uh, my father was in Congress, though. My my father, my father who didn't go to college, uh, as opposed to my my, my background, uh, you know, worked his way up Chicago Democratic machine. Uh, he was retiring in 2004, and uh, I moved back to Chicago and ran for for Congress because it was something that um, I had thought when I was younger I wanted to do. I decided, no, I'm just going to teach about Congress, which is what I was doing. But um, I came back home, ran for Congress, and was there for uh, for 16 years. And it became increasingly frustrating that uh, Congress did not work. Individual members gave up their own power. Everything's run by leadership. And it uh, Congress has... Uh, really made itself, especially the House, uh, institution that uh, is not at all serving the role it's supposed to serve for the American people. You were a deeply conservative Democratic member. Uh, first, I'll note that you went to Northwestern, which is um, the best thing on your whole resume. Obviously, go Cats. Uh, we'll get into okay. that later. Well, an extensive conversation about that. But um, uh, did you consider running as a Republican? Did you consider switching parties? Uh was that part of your frustration at all? Well, you know, you, you sound like the left wing media when you tell when you say I was very conservative because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a 90 percent score with the AFL-CIO and 90 percent with League of Conservation Voters. Um, I was uh, I, I'm pro-life uh, and that really was uh, what wound up uh, doing me in in the uh, in the Democratic primary that. Uh, abortion lobby came after me, uh, $3 million in 2018 and nearly won. And they had even more out after me in 2020 when, where I lost. So I, I, I'm not a, never, I never was a, um, uh, you know, a, a party line Democrat. Uh, but, uh, always, especially growing up in Chicago, you know, was, was a Democrat. And, and it's funny people wouldn't, wouldn't know it, even today. Still, there are some conservative Democrats in Chicago. People who just have always called themselves Democrats uh, and have haven't changed, but uh, are are fairly fairly conservative. Uh, so, no, I mean, I I did not ever consider running as a uh, as a Republican. Uh, it was a, a Democratic district. I consider myself more of a Democrat, although it's be, become extremely difficult these days to be a 
to be a Democrat with as far left as the party has gone. Congressman Ribble, it's your turn. All right, thanks. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Reed Ribble, and I'm, I'm from uh, Northeast Wisconsin. I was a roofing contractor for 35 years. I had my own company there. And uh, in uh, 2009, I started getting frustrated by what today seems quite novel, a $12 trillion deficit. And, <laughs> and by anybody's standards, it's a $28 trillion. So um, I'm, I'm dismayed at my total ineffectiveness at slowing that down a bit. But the, I, I was frustrated by that. And so I thought, well, I should maybe run for Congress. Uh, I, uh, I was challenged by my oldest son to do so. And and uh, decided to do it. I found myself in a uh, start. What started out to be an eight-way Republican primary. We had a, we were represented by represented in the district, Wisconsin's eighth district, by a Democrat congressman by the name of Steve Kagan. And um, the uh, Democrats had full control of government. And so I thought, why couldn't a regular citizen run? I had no political experience whatsoever. I'm the exact opposite of Dan Lipinski. Uh, maybe uh, America's. Um, least educated member of Congress at the time. I graduated from high school, but just barely. I was fairly successful in construction and uh, learned a few things just by living life along the way. And so I decided to run. I ended up uh, winning uh, my Republican primary uh, with 48% of the vote. And then I went on to defeat uh, the incumbent Democrat. That was in 2010, what, what is a affectionately looked back upon these days as the Tea Party wave of 2010. Uh, and so I went in with that big group of freshman uh, members filled with piss and vinegar, wanting to change America. And I uh, soon found out that uh, members of Congress had less say on legislation than the chief of staff of their office did or the legislative director. And uh, it was a constant push upstream against the uh, the tide of leadership. And um, the first thing I was taught when I got there, and it's kind of ironic, you, there are a few votes that you're told as a partisan that you are to never vote against. One of those is a rule bill, which is just a procedural bill, and Dan can appreciate that. You're told as a Republican, when you're in the majority, you vote for the rule no matter what, you know, and then a motion to recommit, you always vote against that. And so for the most part, we were pretty good. But then all of a sudden, the speaker would begin to put things in the rule bill that were actually based on policy. So it wasn't just voting on how to set up how many minutes of debate each side got and what we we're going to be talking about, but I was actually having to vote on policy. So I found myself on occasion having to vote against rules, which put me in um, kind of a bad spot with the leadership because you have to vote for everything. But, you know, I got the crap beat out of me for voting uh, to, to vote for a budget I didn't even agree with. And I was on the budget committee. Uh, and then within months, the, the rules bills were waiving the budget that they just beat me up to pass. <laughs> and so I, I said, okay, this is just a bunch of nonsense. And uh, I just began to vote. If, if there was policy in a bill, I voted on a policy without regard. And so I think I ended up my uh, six years there. I, I went in with a self-imposed term limit uh, with being the only member of that class who never had a, a bill come to the floor of the house. And uh, there's there's reasons for that other than other than naming a post office after a fallen soldier in my district. That was it. So that that, that was my sad story. <laughs> uh, Congressman Lipinski, you have a piece in The Atlantic this week, which, you know, lots of people can write about how Congress is broken and the move of the administrative state, the growth of that, uh, the judiciary, the executive kind of taking over a lot of the traditionally legislative functions. Steve and I have talked about it at length, but your piece in The Atlantic got me thinking on a whole nother level about why it's not just Congress writ large is broken, but the House of Representatives specifically is what is driving a lot of the brokenness. I was wondering if you could summarize your piece for us, uh, tell us you know, why you are um, diagnosing the problem as it is. Well... I, I love the House of Representatives. I I love the the institution. I was always amazed. I tell you one thing: when uh, I would go out to it, to Washington, and um, when my father was in Congress, and and visit with him, is how representative of the country uh, Congress is, and the diversity of, of the country that that the members of the House are. Um, and that was that's the way it was meant to be. 
And the uh, Madison largely uh, set up Congress to have the House, you know, be the closest to the people, the only the only ones in the federal government who are directly elected by the people were members of of the House. And they're supposed to go there and represent their constituents and the diverse views of their their constituents. Uh, Today, um, people run for Congress to represent their party to a large extent and just to fall in line with the party as if it were a parliament. And we do not have a parliamentary system. We purposely don't have a parliamentary system. The uh, framers of the Constitution wanted Americans to have both a House and the Senate, you know, two different places they have input. They wanted the House and the Senate to actually debate and deliberate. They're supposed to come together and bring their constituents diverse views, especially the House, bring, you know, come together, talk about these diverse views, debate, deliberate, and try to come up with the best policy for the country. Today, we have more of a system where people run for Congress, and some of them don't even run these days to be legislators. Uh, they, they run for the blue check mark, um, and, and that's it. Uh, By which, just to clarify for listeners, you're referring to a blue check mark on Twitter, which means you are verified, which is sort of a stand-in for, I don't know, being important or something. I'm not quite sure what it's a stand-in for. Yeah, I, I, I still haven't figured that out. I don't think I have a blue check mark right now uh, on, on my account. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other story I could get into uh, with uh, social media for a former member. Um, but right now, me- members, you know, are expected. It, look what's going on right now with this infrastructure bill. All these people are saying, and this isn't the House, it's the Senate, they're saying, oh, Cinema and Mansion need to get in line with the party. Like, no, Cinema and Mansion need to represent their states. That's what they're sent to do. And in this whole idea uh, that uh, they're just we're members of Congress also represent their 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 party uh, completely runs counter to our American system. So in the House now, what happens? Uh, I talk about in the Atlantic piece the last decade, every major law has largely been written in the Senate because the House only on major legislation, especially, but it gets it goes to a lot of the legislation just passed partisan partisan bills, uh, which are written to largely uh, they're they're written as uh, political pieces. Uh, they're written aiming towards the next election to please the, the, the donors, the interest groups, uh, that the party is, is, wants to make sure gets uh, revved up for the next election. And there too, this legislation that's passed by the House is too far of the mainstream. Uh, the Senate takes the House bill and says, we can't pass this. Uh, we're gonna pass our own bill. Um, most of the time it winds up in gridlock, but when there are situations for example, with this infrastructure bill, House passed its own infrastructure bill, uh, but the Senate said, no, we're, you know, there's a bipartisan group of senators came together and the Senate said, if there's going to be an infrastructure bill, and the president said he wants an infrastructure bill, House says it wants an infrastructure bill, Senate says, well, it's going to be this one, the one that we, we passed in the Senate. That's, that's the way things work these days. And it is really detrimental to the to our country i i think uh, it usually leads to gridlock people are not americans are not really being represented by their representatives in the house and i, I don't see how we continue to go on this way with uh you know one house of congress just not not really working uh and so it's it's a it's a major problem i it got my time there. It just got worse and worse. And I'm not sure how we get out of this. Uh, the the American people are seem to be happy to elect people who make all these wild promises and you know they I'm the Democrat and I'm gonna we're gonna make all these changes and Medicare for all, free this, free that, and Republicans who say I'm gonna stop all the spending and we're gonna shut down, you know we're gonna have a balanced budget, we're gonna cut your taxes. 
down to nothing. And those people get elected and and nothing happens. And it's it's a big problem for our country. Well, let me, I, I want to drill down on, on something you wrote in, in the Atlantic piece that really sort of jumped off the page at me uh, in describing the House of Representatives today and how it functions or how it doesn't. Um, you basically conclude that it has little purpose in our constitutional structure as it exists today. You say it's a chamber that, quote, is not contributing to lawmaking on the most important issues facing our country. You've given us a little background on why you think that's happening. A very basic question for you. What do members of Congress do all day? What do members of the House do all day? If they're not lawmaking, what are they doing? Tweeting, um, going on TV and, and performing. Uh, Yuval, Yuval Levin has a, uh, ha- has a great book, and, and this is part of uh, what he talks about. He talks about the whole, all of our, our institutions are now being used to Instead of forming people, they use institutions to perform. And that really applies strongly to Congress and especially to the, uh, to the House. And they also fundraise. It, it's, you know, the amount of money that is raised now is just I- I- incredible. So those, all those things are, are done. When I was in the House, I spent a lot of time trying to get things done and, and trying to work. And, and there are, you know, I don't want anyone to think that the House never passes anything. Uh, it never has any say anywhere. It's just the major legislation they do not. And, and so little has been getting done the last, last couple of years. But look, the, the House passed a um, a, a bipartisan uh, National Science Foundation bill. Uh, I was just talking to a colleague of mine over there who said they they they're hoping that the Senate will, will take that up and they'll actually get something done. But most people don't. It, I think it's important. Most people don't really care, know about the National Science Foundation. Some things like that can still get done. But unfortunately, it's this whole this partisanship and this gridlock has crept down into you know, a, a lot of things. So what, what does the House do? Um, well, these days, a lot of time they, 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 they sit around waiting for. Uh, Nancy Pelosi to, to tell them what, uh, what what's going to happen. Congressman Ribble, I want to I want to ask you sort of a, a follow up uh, to, to that question. Um, you've made this you've made, made similar points. Everyone knows that members of Congress spend an inordinate amount of time raising money, and Congressman Lipinski just referenced that. What most people don't know, and what I really didn't appreciate for years, even as I I covered Congress uh, pretty intently is that your ability to raise money affects everything from your standing in the party to your committee assignments. You have to raise money for the congressional campaign committees for each party, and you're judged by how much you contribute. Can you explain that dynamic? It's something I think most people don't really understand, maybe not even aware of. Um, How does that work? What are the expectations for for members of Congress in raising money, not just for their own reelection, but for the, the the party itself? Yeah. You know, when I, when I was first elected, I was told right away that, um, I mean, literally, uh, uh, in December, I hadn't even been sworn in yet in December. I was told by my uh, incoming chief of staff that I need to start raising money for my, my reelect that before it was even sworn in. And, and then very shortly after I'd got there, um, they started talking to me about starting a leadership pack. And I had no idea what a leadership pack was. Remember, I had never served in any political capacity before. So I was, I was really new at it. And they said, well, if you want to uh, get, get better committee assignments, if you want to uh, maybe become a subcommittee chairman someday, you've got to be a team player and you've got to donate money to the, in my case, I'm a Republican, donate money to the uh, NRCC. And you've got to help colleagues that maybe are a bit uh, in tough districts to, uh, to get uh, win their elections, got to raise money for them. And uh, uh, all that stuff is monitored and measured. Uh, I remember almost laughing out loud once when I heard Speaker Ryan uh, in a podcast like this say that the House of Representatives is a true merit uh, organization and that, you know, the cream of the crop rises uh, based on their ability to legislate. Well, that's all nonsense. They rise based on the ability to raise money. Um, and in essence, those committee assignments, those committee chairmanships and all that, 
are are bought and paid for. Now, I won't give the name of the member because uh, I don't have permission to use it. I remember one time uh, I was going after a subcommittee chairmanship and I was doing all the work necessary. I was talking to people and trying to build up uh, support. I had put a packet together and all my qualifications on why I should be subcommittee chairman. The first question I got asked by everybody on the steering committee is, how are you doing across the street? Meaning, how are you doing over at NRCC in raising money for the team? And you know, I told them, and um, and I was doing okay, but I wouldn't say I was doing great. I ultimately didn't get that subcommittee chairmanship, and so I went to the to the person that did, and I said, "So, how does this whole thing work? I don't get it." And he said, "Well, you screwed up. You gave the money in advance. I raised the money and I kept it in my account and said, if you want." If you want this money, then I want this subcommittee chairmanship. And and you see how the trading goes on. So that was the merit. Now, I had already written bills and had tried to advance stuff in committee. and was a very active legislator. Um, you asked what people did during the day, Stephen. I actually tried to legislate. I was never good at it. I was never really successful at it. I remember even having a bill with 235 co-sponsors on it, bipartisan, that I couldn't even get a, a, a markup in a committee on it. And this was a bill that had the Speaker of the House as a co-sponsor, and I couldn't get a markup in a committee. And and so Merit, uh, Merit, Merit was all about the money. It's unfortunate. It's a sad tale, but it's true. And this this goes the other direction as well, right? I mean, if you, know, you have somebody like Kevin McCarthy, who is a prodigious fundraiser, um, he is responsible for helping to, to fund the, the campaigns of many of the people who are now serving in Congress. And it builds this kind of loyalty um, from these members that he's helped get elected. The same, of course, is true with Nancy Pelosi. Um, how much does that matter? And, you know, for Republicans, I mean, I, I would look at the job that Kevin McCarthy is doing right now. And um, I think he's been a horrible leader. Um, in virtually every respect, because he's not actually a leader, he's just following. Um, but if Republicans win the House of Representatives back uh, next fall, as I think most people expect that they will, there's not much chance that he would be um, removed or that somebody else would be elected because he's built up so much loyalty among the rank and file by helping to fund their races. Is that, is that, an, am I crazy? To, to no, no, you've, you've described it accurately. That's how, that's how the system works. And, and so the, the real question is how do you rest? How do you pull that power back and give it back to the, the members? The speaker is voted on by the members. And so the members can remove a speaker. And let me tell you who the members can't remove. They can't remove a committee chairman because the committee chairman are selected by the speaker. And so the speaker's in control of everything. And, and so members have very little say. The only way you can fix that, in my opinion, is to invert that process where, where the, not only does the speaker get elected by the members, but the committee chair get selected and voted in by the committee members. Now the chairman would be subject to the committee members and going to what, what the, uh, Dan said, this would allow the great voice of the crowd, the American people, to be heard because they're not being heard right now. Because the, the voices in, for example, when Paul Ryan was speaker, the voices of, of the constituents in Wisconsin 1 were exponentially louder than the voices of the, of the citizens in Wisconsin 8. And so it's a, it's a, a massive change in thinking uh, and it would return power to members that they don't have. I brought that up as a rule change in in uh, the Republican conference, and I practically got booed out of the room. How in the world can you imagine that that these elected members of Congress would want to just cede all their power to somebody else and then have no say in anything? And the answer is because they don't want say in anything. They want to be protected. And the tragedy of all of this is. Uh, Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution says this, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which will consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. They don't want that power. They continually cede that power and that authority to the administration because it protects them. They're looking for a protector to 
so they can hold on to this bit of fame or whatever it is they're holding on to. The job's not all that great, so I don't know what it is they're holding on to. So the only thing I could conclude was people just, they, they're attached to the fame of it all, whatever that fame provides for them emotionally. I don't know. But this is why I love Reed, even though he's a Packers fan. Uh, <laughs> The, the the idea that um, somehow a member of Congress is actually going to care to be a legislator and care to represent their constituents above all else and, and, and not just want to be there and keep and stay there. Um, yeah, that, that's, we need more. We need a whole lot more of that in uh, it in Congress in uh, we're, we're just, we are not getting that. And I, I again, I, I think another part is American people need to, American people need to, to see this, understand this, and they need to vote for something different. Uh, but uh, I think it's hard for people to see that. And everyone's taken over now by, uh, we're two battling tribes or, or I've written about there. We're actually, we're a sectarian society and Congress has just fallen into this, especially the house. I mean, there are some senators who will, you know, I, I give them credit. They will stand up and, and stand apart. I mean, cinema mansion, they are, they are representing, I, I think they're representing their constituents. And every time someone talks about, oh, mansion should get in line. I say, Democrats should be really, really happy that Joe Manchin for the state that elected Donald Trump, you know, Trump won by 39% in that state. Manchin is nowhere near. Uh, I mean, he's for, for much further to the left. I hate to say this, hope it doesn't hurt Joe. Uh, much further to the left than, than the state of West Virginia. So all these people who are complaining about Joe Manchin, what do you, they don't understand or they don't, they don't care what America is supposed to be, what representation is supposed to be, how government is supposed to work. Uh, and so that that's really been bothering me recently. Every time I every time I see that, and you see it from senators and Senator Sanders. I mean, he really stepped into it with that tweet that 48 senators and 210 House members all want one thing. Everyone else needs to get in line. And I love the retweet. I wish I had done this. The, the retweet someone put out there saying a Republicans would be really happy to. To see that they've more than 48 senators and more than 210 members in the house uh so uh, i thought that was that was perfect congressman lipinski you have studied this so i'm gonna go to you with this question in your political science hat is there a moment that congress broke along the way is it the introduction of tv cameras is it uh social media taking off is it what what caused this, or has it just been a slow rot? It has largely been a slow rot, and you don't want me to go into the political science. There's actually, there's actually some good uh, political science written about this that you can you could trace it back in some ways to the '70s. You can trace it back to the Watergate babies and the changes they started making to the rules back then, and then speakers started picking up the increased power. But Newt Gingrich was really a turning point. Newt Gingrich really uh, made the speakership uh, a lot stronger than it had ever been. Um, and, you know, he continued that on. You know, Denny Hastert picked it up from, from him. Once it switched over and Nancy Pelosi, you know, it just, it has just ramped up more, more and more. Uh, so I, I think that's, it's been a, it's been a slow rot. And one of the big problems is you have few members of Congress who are there now who know how the institution can actually work and what power they actually can wield, what, what members should be doing. Uh, in the, I watched people leave, people like Reed, just who said, I, you know, forget it. I, I don't, I've got better things to do with my life uh, than, than to be... Yeah, not able to get anything done here. Um, I saw people, so many people like that leave Congress, others who were not reelected because people like me who said, I'm not just going along with the party on, on everything. Uh, and so that's a problem. I, I, that makes it even tougher now. You're, you're losing the 
the members who can actually step up and say, hey, I know, I know what this place can actually be. And members come in now, new members come in and think, well, this is the only way. Uh, the, the only way things can be is, you know, the speaker has all the power to decide everything and we just have to let the speaker do everything. And if you're in a minority, I just, we just need to give our minority leader all the power that they can have so that we can get everything back. So then we can have power. Actually, then the speaker has the power. And so that's how we get out of this. I don't, I don't know. Congressman Ribble, I think I have a slightly more depressing observation. Is that uh, possible? <laughs> Uh, Congressman Lipinski was saying, you know, people are leaving who want to legislate. And he said earlier that the American people need to pick a different way if we want to fix this. But oftentimes in these races, the American people aren't being offered a choice of a different way because the only people interested in running for Congress are the ones who want to sign up for this job, what it currently is, not the one that you, uh, how adorably thought it might be. Um, and do people like you still run for Congress? And if not, we can't get that back, can we? Uh, no, people like me do run for Congress. They run in every race. And then you can look at North Carolina. You can look at, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene won a primary, you know. But here, here's what's happened is there is a there is a large group of Republicans. And I'm going to say of primary voters, about 25 to 30 percent, which is generally enough to swing a primary election. that the only metric that they're interested in is the one where someone campaigns that I'm going to go fight. I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. And, and uh, what, what I discovered when I got there was that the Republicans were off in the right corner with paper swords flailing them in the wind. And the Democrats were off in the left corner of the room flailing their paper swords in the wind. Nobody's striking a blow and the speaker just doing whatever the hell they wanted. And, and, but they could go back home and talk about fighting because fighting is how you talk. It's not about what you do. And so as long as you go on a podcast like this, or you, uh, uh, go on, on Fox news or MSNBC and you blast the other side, the, the American voter, that primary voter who's tuned into that political life, they just think you're fighting and they're, they're cheering you on. And I had, I can't even tell you how many times I had people, uh, Republicans in my district tell me I'm not a good enough fighter because I'm not blasting President Obama on TV every day. And my response was, well, if I want the president to sign legislation that someday lands on his desk, how inclined is he going to be if I'm, I'm kicking him every time I, I go on TV? It's just an ineffective way of, of managing human relationships. But for some reason in this relationship that we have, that gets rewarded. And so you end up with folks like Lauren Boebert beating a Scott, T Scott Tipton, who was a very pragmatic, thoughtful member of Congress, but she beat him in a primary. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, who beat a very competent and capable candidate that would have been much more pragmatic and thoughtful. And so uh, all based on the screaming and yelling and shouting. And um, now this happened before Trump, but Trump just amplified it. It was like he put a thousand watt amplifier behind all those voices and uh, be, began to push that out there. And uh, I, I mean, I was just super dismayed at, at it because there are good members of Congress, but they're going to struggle keeping their positions because on the left, you've got Bernie and AOC doing the same thing uh, to, to their pragmatic members that the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world and, and that kind of ilk are going to do to the right. And this just continues to degrade until the American people stand up and say, enough is enough. And they ultimately hold the power. They really do. If they would just seize it, they they can stop any member of Congress. There is term limits in this country. I, I self-imposed one. But every two years, a term certain happens for every single member of the House of Representatives. That term ends and people don't check. Yes, on the on the box, that person goes home. And uh, the, the problem is we need better decision making and and. And we need a society that is listening above the din of of the media that is just constantly pushing hard left and hard right. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to turn on um, a lot of what I hear on cable news today because it's just it's just gotten to be crazy town. How big a contributing factor is gerrymandering? I mean, we, we have now uh, a, a very small percentage of congressional districts that are actually competitive, that are really 
what we would call swing districts. And so what you see is sitting members of Congress are often more concerned about a primary, about being primaried, uh, than they are about a general election battle. And in order to ward off primaries, they do these things that will appeal to the extremes. And I think we're seeing that right now, particularly on the Republican side, with all of the nonsense about the stolen election. I think if you took a, a survey of Republicans in the House of Representatives and, and forced them to tell the truth, you'd find very few of them who actually believe the nonsense that Donald Trump is spouting about the election having been stolen. But when you listen to them speaking in public, they will, many of them, go along with the idea, at the very least go along, sometimes amplify it, sometimes promote the idea that the election was stolen because they're trying to fight off a primary. So long and loaded question. Uh, I'll go back to you, Congressman Ribble, first. How big a, a factor is, is gerrymandering? Are these carved districts? I, I think it's a factor. It's not the total factor. It's not as big a factor as what we believe. People self-select where they live. Democrats live in urban areas and Republicans live in rural areas, and they kind of self-select. I mean, if you look at the counties in the U.S., the country is vastly red. If you look at every urban area in the country, those cities are vastly yellow or blue, I'm sorry. And so uh, there's a self-selection there, so it can make it difficult to do districting in a way that would try to get a little bit more balanced. But the parties have gotten good at packing districts. I think I think in many respects, in, in the state of Wisconsin, my uh, my state, uh, Democrats overpack districts. They, they've made districts too blue. They've shoved too many blue voters in, in a handful of districts, and now they only have a handful. And and so uh, it, 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 it swings both ways for sure. And um, there are, like you said, only a handful of truly competitive districts. But I think it's almost as much the result of, of self-selection where people live. And uh, so it, it does make it difficult. But anything that would move a district closer to the middle would 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 shove a left and right. And, you know, you could also do a top five type of uh, primary, uh, nonpartisan primaries. You could break that cycle in different ways by changing how we do elections in this country. But that also gets the party bosses nervous because they like this system, because for them, it's about controlling power. Congressman Lipinski, just picking up on that, feel free to address the, the question about gerrymandering. But you mentioned earlier Twitter and social media and, and this sort of information environment that we're all operating in. How much do you point to that as a causal factor of what we're seeing today of, of the, the House of Representatives essentially not functioning? Yuval Levin, as you pointed out, has written quite a bit about performative uh, lawmaking or performative um, I guess you can't really call it lawmaking because it's the absence of lawmaking. Um, but people who are basically playing for cameras more than actually interested in doing their job. It's a common theme of, of this podcast as well. Is, is that the dominant factor? Uh, how, how would you compare that relative to things like gerrymandered districts? No, I think that is a dominant factor. I think social media, I think the uh, playing to the... Uh, you're playing to the bleachers on, on both sides. I, I, it, it works. I mean, that, that's the thing that is, is that it works. Cause I, you know, I, I remember a lot of, uh, a lot of Democrats, liberal Democrats always talking about pub, we, we need small, more small dollar donors. That's the thing we got to change in, in, you know, in, in theory, sure. You know, they're saying we need to fight the corporate interests and we need more small dollar donors. And then who comes along and is the best at, who raised more money ever from the small dollar donors? Donald Trump. It, it, it doesn't matter uh, which you're left or you're right. The, the crazier you are, the more willing you're, you are to say things that are just outrageous and fire people up and, and really appeal to the worst of, of people. Uh, the more money you're going to raise. I mean, that was always a major problem that I had. Like, who's who? wants to give who gets fired up to send off their 10 25 $50 to someone who says yeah I'm 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 working uh to I, I'm working with Republicans to we're gonna get something good done here we're, we're gonna I, I'm for I'm for pragmatism I'm for making uh, making things a little bit better 
No, they give the people say, hey, I'm going to change it. I'm changing. I'm changing this country. I'm bringing a revolution. Uh, that's where that's who gets all the attention. They get attention on social media that helps with the, the fundraising that gets people out knocking on the doors for these these crazy candidates. And, and then they play off each other. I mean, the, the woman who replaced me got into a uh, a, a battle with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, their offices very, I thought it was hilarious. Their offices are across from each other uh, in uh, in the office building, house office building. But look, so they, they, they start this battle and they're each putting out their their tweets and their videos of how horrible the other one is. And they just feed off each other and they both raise a lot of money. And they're talking about nothing that has anything to do about being a member of Congress. Or, so uh, I think that's the biggest problem. Gerrymandering is a bit of the problem. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a part of the problem at all. Uh, it's so easy now to, to, to draw these maps exactly the way that uh, it, it, at least the parties think from the data that they have, they're going to be able to to win and distribute the voters in the correct best possible way for the party. Um, but I think these other things that are that make it worse. I want to talk you know, about the. Oh yeah, no, please, Congressman. Yeah, I'm just saying that one 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 follow up, Stephen, on the whole big lie about the election. You mentioned Republican members. If any. If any one of, for example, the Arizona delegation, if any one of them had an ounce of integrity, those House members would say, you know what, this election, I, we just can't trust it. So I'm going to step back and voluntarily resign my seat until the count is redone. But you see, they want you to believe that they won their election. But Donald Trump, the Democrats were so dumb in their district that the only person that they were going to cheat out of a election was the president and not the congressman or the senator, you know. And and so, I mean, either the election was bad in its entirety or the election was good in its entirety. And but they don't want they they want they need to parse that because Donald Trump spent months and months telling everybody was going to be rigged if he lost. It's just embarrassing. I want to actually talk a little bit about the two parties and where they've been headed recently, uh, uh, policy-wise, as a structure, as a mood. Um, Congressman Ribble, you came in, as you said, with the Tea Party wave that was about limited government, uh, cutting spending, all sorts of things that the Republican Party doesn't really seem to believe in anymore, certainly didn't for the last four years, maybe is now saying that they do. Uh, should we believe that Republicans still believe in that? Should like looking back now, should I believe that even the Tea Party folks ever believed that? Or is every iteration just a new way to rile up voters and, and get power? I think both of those things are true. I think there's a group of people in the House, a group of Republicans in the House that are dismayed by the spending. They didn't have the the, the courage to to man up and tell Donald Trump no. Um, but at the same hand, in the six years that I was there, the first five years, discretionary spending went down. First time since the Korean War that that happened. And then Donald Trump got elected with full Republican House and Senate. Spending went up every single year. Deficit spending went up every single year under the Trump administration. And so they abandoned the high ground on that on that issue. And um, part of it was the, the, the intense pressure to get tax reform done. But I was always an advocate of a setting taxation at whatever level the Congress wanted to spend. So if you want to spend $5 trillion, then you should be willing to tell the American people we're going to tax at $5 trillion. And what would have happened if they did that, if they actually passed the real cost of government down to the American people? The American people might agree that government should be more limited. But right now, the American people are getting government at a 40 or 50% discount. So they're happy to take it. So if, I had, so, your, if I had your uh, experience going back 10 months ago and was sitting in your office uh, getting the phone calls you were getting, what would I think the Republican Party stood for these days? Uh, Trumpism. The Republican Party stood for supporting the president. The, every single campaign finance letter I get from Republicans, it's all about standing with Trump. Not a single thing about principle. It's all about standing with Trump. And then every now and again, you get somebody bashing Biden over the head with a stick. 
But for the most part, it's about stand, I stand with Trump. I stand with Trump. I stand with Trump. And so Trumpism is the platform. And if you remember in the 2020 election, Republicans abandoned their platform and said, whatever the president wants is our platform. And so if that's what it is, and stop and think about this. I, 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 just, I was really struck at this. All spending authority comes and starts in the House of Representatives. They control the power of the purse. Three times in a row, the Congress of the United States voted to not fund the border wall. They voted not to do that. Trump said, screw you. I'm going to reappropriate money that you appropriated for building schools for children of, of uh, active duty and military. I'm going to direct that to the wall because I have full authority. And, and Republicans just fell right in line. Only 12 or 13. Very proud that, that my congressman, Mike Gallagher, voted against it. But the fact of the matter is they just capitulated. And they just ceded all their authority to the White House on it. And once you do it once, you encourage them to keep doing it. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So Congressman Lipinski, the Republican Party believes nothing is a power-hungry authoritarian cult uh, I, I might be putting some words in Congressman Ribble's mouth there. Um, but that's what I heard. Uh, yeah, definitely. pretty close. Uh, <laughs> pretty close. So <laughs> if, if that's all you knew, it seems to me that the Democrats should have 75 seats in the Senate, 300 plus seats in the house, but that hasn't happened because the democratic party also has a problem. Uh, David Shore, the Democratic data guy from the Obama campaign, who, funny enough, was then canceled on Twitter, but uh, has a profile written by Ezra Klein that it was fascinating to me. You know, he notes that split ticket voting um, has is gone uh, just across the country. There is now the Senate presidential vote was 71% tied together in 2008. It's now 95.6% tied together in 2020. And he talks about how the Democratic Party uh, is overrepresented by liberal white people who then control sort of that messaging that David Shore says is unpopular. So the defund the police, the Latin X, these type things, which in fact are um, dog whistles the opposite way they want. It's a dog whistle that we're not like you. We don't think like you. We don't talk like you. And we don't hang out with people like you. And as a result, the Democratic Party has been uh, pretty, for for political science purposes, pretty quickly losing non-college educated white voters. And we saw Donald Trump pick up, I mean, a shocking number of Hispanic and Latino voters, especially in the Texas border area uh, and parts of Florida. Um, why can't the Democratic Party capitalize on the total collapse of the Republican Party? Well, let me first say that is exactly why I'm no longer in Congress is because those people have sort of taken over the the party. And I always had my, you know, always got most of my support, even though as a college professor who lives in a nice suburb of Chicago, um, you know, my, my support came from the, you know, lower in the middle class, you know, working class people, um, those 
people that the Democratic Party has basically pushed aside, said, we really don't we really don't care about you anymore. Um, it's been taken over by the uh, well-off white liberal suburbanites uh, who are really don't have to, they, they make all these pronouncements uh, about the way things should be uh, that, first of all, don't really impact them. Uh, they, they don't really, I mean, it, it's very, very counter uh, to the Democratic Party that I've all, that I always believed in is standing up for, you know, standing up for the little guy. You know, that, that was that was always it. And, and that's always why people say, well, why are you a Democrat? Well, Democrats have stood up for the little guy. And, and that's not really, although I think some, some people think they are. <laughs> I don't I think they have this image that they're standing up for the little guy, but they're 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 not really. So I, look, the, the Democratic Party has gone off the rails um, just as much as the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a cult of personality now. Uh, and I think that largely comes from the the fact that uh, the Republican Party has been without really big ideas for a while. I mean, that's the way I see it. I, I actually I I have a piece in um, the latest edition of First Things Magazine where I talk about common good Republicans, and, and I talk about are the Republicans turning essentially a Trumpism without Trump? Um, are they are they going to turn more in talking about being common good, uh, you know, following Catholic social teaching, um, sort of a, a lot along the ways of the ways I've always, I was as a member of, of Congress in, in my political thinking uh, about um, the way the, the government should operate, who needs to, to, to be helped, not, not big government, but government can help some people uh, government shouldn't, we should not just be a completely free, open, open market, um, sort of a, a middle ground there on, on economics. And, and I hope the Republican Party goes that way. Uh, I think Donald Trump opened the door to that. He didn't ever do anything. Don, look, Donald Trump talked a lot about a lot of important issues. I mean, he really knew, he understood things that are troubling people. And problems that people have, and that's why he was able to win. He talked about those problems, but then he came in and he did nothing about them. You know, the only thing that the major piece of legislation at the time was a tax cut that, you know, mostly went to the top. Um, so he did not at all know how to govern that that way. But so I actually looked at the Republican Party and say, if the Republican Party can go in that direction. Uh, I think that uh, it, it will be good for our country, and I hope the Democrats wake up and say, hey, and I think the Democrats are really freaked out by the, especially Hispanic voters, who are going more towards the Republican Party. And the, the expectation that the future is the Democrats because the Hispanic voting numbers are, are, are going to be rising so much. I think that really has the Democrats worried, but they, they're yet to respond to that because the people who are leading are still these suburban, college-educated, well-to-do, white liberals, who now progressives, who are really completely out of touch with uh, what's really going on out there. And, and, uh, so it's, it needs, both parties are bankrupt right now. I mean, I, there's no question, both parties are bankrupt. I mean, it's, can it's I interesting. Yeah, sure. Please can I, jump can right I have in. something quick, that, Stephen? Uh, on the Hispanic vote, you know, I've always heard Republicans don't want to, to do comprehensive immigration. We're just going to create a bunch of Democrat voters. And, and, and I think Donald Trump proved that wrong. That's not true. When you think in terms of Central American, you think in terms of the Hispanic voter, they're, they're mostly very family oriented. They're entrepreneurial. They're hardworking. They're Catholic. They're pro-life. They're, they're, they're in many respects Dan Lipinski, and and we think that that there's something bad about that. But Republicans have, are starting to begin to appreciate that work ethic and that that desire for self improvement and self accomplishment. And uh, I, I think Hispanics are going to be more and more inclined to vote 
a con- to, toward a conservative side, maybe not exclusively so, but moving more to the right, because it falls more in alignment with that basic understanding of who they are and the culture that they've come from. So we shouldn't be afraid, as Republicans, we shouldn't be afraid of comprehensive immigration reform. We ought to be, we ought to be advocating for it. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting, Congressman Lipinski, I would suggest that in many ways, you would be a better person to lead the charge on this kind of common good conservatism than many of the people who actually are trying to lead the charge on common good conservatism, because they're using sort of Catholic, Catholic social teaching, um, it feels like as, as sort of a power move more than anything else. And I think in many cases, this doesn't apply universally, but in many cases, some of the people who are uh, sort of most outspoken about creating this new common good conservatism lack credibility to do so because they were most enthusiastic about the candidacy and the presidency of Donald Trump. And you're talking about a thrice married um, philanderer who paid off porn stars who, I mean, I don't need to go down the list exhaustively or we'd be here for several hours, but this is not exactly somebody who stands as, as a paragon of, of virtue or who did much to advance the common good. And I guess the, the question I would have back to you as you, as you look at um, some of the people who have made these arguments in the pages of, of First Things and the New York Post and, and elsewhere, um, do you worry that the way that they talk about common good is less about actually promoting some understanding of the common good and more about a power play to say, it's our common good. We're the ones who understand it to hell with everybody else. Oh, Stephen, don't burst. Don't burst the only hope I have. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. It's, I, I like to be, I like to think of myself as skeptical and not cynical, but there are times where I give well, in to the cynicism. Well, unfortunately, I, I fall into that same camp. So I'll, I'll just say uh, I'm hoping that that's not the case. But yes, it, it certainly looks like uh, perhaps, but I, 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 I don't want to judge this, but uh, perhaps these are just people who see, hey, this worked for Trump. I'm going I'm to talk this way also. Um, but um, I I think the the facts are that there there is a pathway here. Donald Trump showed there's a pathway for hopefully tr- people who truly believe this and want to want to run for office and govern for the for the common good. I, I it's I, you know people have talked about Ross Douthat is, is one who's always talked about you know that that's a great un represented portion of, of the American people. And I, I, I just laugh because I've been there. I, this, that where I, that's where I was my entire yeah. political career. But where's, where's, the, where's the support? I mean, that's, right. that was always the thing. I mean, where, where is the, the, the support for that? I think that the support amongst the people is there, but the, you know, it's hard to run that way. I mean, Donald Trump... That was that was an appeal of Donald Trump, but you know, let, I, I'm not. Let's not kid ourselves. That wasn't Donald Trump's only appeal. Um, and, and, and there's a lot, of, you know, very things very much opposite that that Donald Trump uh, appealed to people on. But that possibility is there for good candidates, and I'm hoping that there are some who are not just opportunists. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as as I listen to you talk, I mean, I, I guess I'm struck by the fact that what I see, what I'm hearing from both of you, what I've seen in in following your careers, was sort of a willingness to to accept political opponents on good faith terms, to try to work with them, to 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 make progress where you can make progress, not let the the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what I hear from some of the most outspoken proponents of this new common good conservatism, I'm thinking here in particular of Saurabh Amari, formerly of the New York Post. Uh, He's left that position to to do something else. But Saurabh and and people who make the arguments he makes, they don't even want to talk to people on the other side. They point to people like our own David French as 
the problem because they're willing to engage on a good faith basis, because they believe in classical liberalism and the, the structures that allow good faith debate to, to yield pro- progress. And I, and I think that's, that's where I'm, I don't mean to dwell on, on this topic, but that's where my, my cynicism uh, kicks in pretty, pretty strong. You, you, you've, you've earned that cynicism um, to a certain degree. I, I prefer the word skepticism, just like you do, Stephen. But I'll give you one quick anecdote. And I know we're, we're pushing up against the clock here. But I remember early on in, in my time in Congress, I was reaching out to members like, like Dan Lipinski, because what I saw in Dan was somebody who, while never compromising a principle, was always willing to seek a principled compromise. And I think there's a distinction there. But um, I was getting ripped on by one of the local conservative radio talk show host. And, you know, I think my chief of staff came in and said, you may want to just dial in. I was in DC. I, I listened to it on, on my uh, computer. And then I, I called in and he was yelling at me and, and all this stuff. And because um, I was working with the Democrats on something. And so he, he picked up the phone. He said, well, speak of the devil. Congressman Ribble's on the phone with us. And I said, well, I got a quick question for you because I've been listening to the, to, to the show. And here's my question. And then you can ask me anything you want said, what is it about your conservative beliefs that you have so little faith in that you don't want me to take those beliefs into the arena with with, uh, my fellow members of Congress? Because it sounds to me like you're a coward that you don't really believe in what you believe because you don't want me talking about it with them. You you act as if it's not persuasive. And then I just shut up. And he- What was his answer? He's well, that's a damn good question, Congressman. Um, and we just kind of went on. He pivoted. He pivoted away. And but you, you understand the point is that we shouldn't be fearful of engaging the, in the arena. And and Dan and I have had wonderful conversations. We'd go out to dinner, and and he knew that I was a conservative and a pretty far to the right guy. And um, but we had great conversations that were filled with mutual respect. And I could begin to understand his 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 passion and heart for people that actually needed help from the government. And and that you you need to be cautious about how you speak and how and how you how you legislate and how you communicate with colleagues so that you don't diminish yourself in their eyes because at some point you might need their vote for things and uh, Dan was a great mentor for me early on and uh, uh, I was thrilled to, to to be part of this podcast with him especially. Well, that brings us to our second hour, which is uh, your relationship <laughs> together vis-a-vis the Packers versus the Bears. Uh, real quick, uh, do you all have a bet still going now that you're no longer in Congress? And how did those bets tend to turn out? What was on the table? If you could just give us your, your high-level analysis of your teams and your individual rivalry. I think I was willing to provide his staff an uh, entire uh, um, bratwurst and beer lunch. Uh, and uh, uh, fortunately, I never really had to pay that. <laughs> so so I, I, I have a picture and I wish I had pulled it out, um, it, at least for those of us on who are doing this right now to see it, of uh, me handing over Home Run Inn Pizzas, one of my favorite pizza places in Chicago. It's not. It's not deep dip dish pizza. We also have good thin crust pizza in Chicago, but home run in pizza, handing it over to, to Reed. But um, now that we have Justin Fields, who is going to be the best quarterback for the Bears since Sid Luckman, whenever that was, way before Maya was born, uh, we're, we're, we're taking over this. Uh, but yeah, I talked to Reed uh, yesterday. Um, I, Gave him a call, and uh, I didn't want to bring. I didn't want to bring up the upcoming game because uh, I don't have a whole lot of faith in uh, what, what's what's going to happen. Well, Congressman Lipinski, I do have good news for you. Uh, so I am married to a Purdue grad as a Northwestern grad, and uh, Northwestern football is playing Purdue football at Wrigley Field in mid-November. Uh, and I, I hope you're going and can, you know, send me some FOMO uh, emails or texts from that game, because I have very high hopes for that little situation. Uh, I don't. The worst, <laughs> Northwestern, the worst Northwestern team we've had since I don't know when. 
They need oh. they will be inspired by Wrigley. It'll be the you know, they'll see it I, I, and it'll be like like field of dreams. They'll walk out and be like, We must win this, defend. I, I went to I went to the game, uh Northwestern played Illinois a few years back at Wrigley Field. And I was like, I gotta I gotta be there. I'm a Cubs fan, even though I'm a even though I'm a Southwest Sider, I'm a I'm a Cubs fan. And so I went I went to that game and it was incredible. It's being Wrigley Field in November for a football game. I mean that that was that was so much fun. But but that was before they expanded Wrigley Field a little bit. They they moved things or and so they could only play in one direction. So they they had, the offense always had to go in one direction. <laughs> so my my favorite point of the game was there was a Northwestern had made an interception, so they're running it back. So now, now you're in danger zone, and he so he runs into the end zone, and I wanted him to keep running and run right into the brick wall. That's what I was. That's what I was. <laughs> I'm going to need to step out here and uh, go pack. <laughs> go Bears. Very good. Go go Packers. Thank you both so much for joining this. This is it's th- good to see everybody. Thank you. Thank this you. This has been so great.